Broadcasting live from Baltimore, Maryland, the Breath of Life Ministries presents Experience the Power. When God gets ready, He can deliver you. If you call on Him, if you trust in Him, He's worthy of the praise. Ooh, 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 ooh. 
go live to the Miracle Temple Worship Center, where our service is in progress. Tonight, I want to turn your attention to, let's see, let's go to Hebrews. I want to sound very intelligent. I'll say the writer to the Hebrews. All of the uh, theologians out there will understand that that's uh, key language. Hebrews chapter 3. And that will get us into our study for tonight. He's there for you. Have you ever heard all those people saying, I'm here for you? Well, the problem with that is, what can they do when they're here for you? I want to talk about somebody who's there for me, but who has power to do something. Because if you're there for me, what can you do? I know one thing, if Jesus is there for you, you'll always have some power waiting on you. What do you say? So let's look tonight at, uh, let's look at Hebrews chapter 3. Only one verse will introduce it. This is verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we call you once again tonight. We dare not open this book without asking for your help. Oh, we can read the words, but without the power of the Holy Spirit, we can't really understand everything you want to say to us. So we open this holy book with the assurance that the author of the book can be with us tonight. As we study this word, Father, let us feel the power of Jesus. Let us know not only word power, but let our hearts be touched by Jesus Christ in a personal way. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to begin with, uh, with an amazing declaration. The fact is that when Jesus ascended to heaven, we have already read that from the Word of God. Uh, I used to wonder as a child, I, you know, you can tell that my parents had a lot of religious themes because they would get things out of the Word of God and then my brother and I would try to make them come down to our level. And uh, you know, I'm happy about the fact that even children can understand the Bible. Do you know that Jesus could have made it so the Bible was so deep and so entrenched in powerful words that nobody could understand it? But it was written so that everybody can get it. All you got to do is pray that the Holy Spirit will be with you. And there are children. In fact, we get notes from children who are watching us in many of our downlink sites, and they say they can understand. I got a note from a young lady the other night who is nine years old, and she sent the note to me, had her mom write it over the Internet and say, I like the way that preacher talks, but tell him even I understand those things he's talking about. So, hey, <laughs> only God can do that. When Jesus ascended, I used to wonder what happened. Did he go to heaven? Well, I already knew that. What I wanted to know was what he was doing there. Well, you know, I figured it like a family. I said, if he went back to be with his father, they're probably just kind of having a nice time. And there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus paid the price for my salvation. He would have deserved to go back to his father and sit down and talk or whatever he could do to divert himself from his job. But Jesus loves us so much that he always wants to be in touch. And more than that, he always wants to be doing something on our behalf. 
Now, why he loves us so much, it'll take ages for us to understand that. Because once I know who I really am, and incidentally, I really don't, only Jesus knows my heart. But if I know myself as well as I do, I wonder what is it about me that makes Jesus want to be around me so much? What is it about me that he finds so attractive? It can't be my life because my life is flawed. But he made me, and we said it the other night, he also ransomed me. And when he looks at me, he doesn't see me as I am, but he sees the possibilities in me that can happen if I just let him have my life. So what's attractive to him about me is what he can do for me if I'll just let him be my partner in life. And I don't know about you, but I'm kind of inclined to do that. I have discovered that when I run my life, it doesn't go too well. Uh, somebody agrees. The fact is that when I let Jesus, when I wake up early in the morning and start with my Bible and get on my knees, pray, and then give God a little time to talk back to me, I discover that I turn in places that I would not have ordinarily turned. And I might not know why, but when I do what he says, I get myself out of trouble. I, I go where he wants me to go. So understand that when Jesus went to heaven, he did not go to relax. It was not a vacation. Jesus went and sat down at the right hand of God, but he had already showed us what job he was going to do because long ago when Israel was in the wilderness, God had said to Moses through Christ, in fact, go to Exodus chapter 25. You need to read it. You need to see it there. Exodus chapter 25. I've got some, uh, some images to show you tonight. I think I'm going to try and show you one in just a minute. Uh, it's going to be a wonderful time. I, I, I got a little note the other day, and they say, when you preach, it looks so easy that I think I could do it. Right. And I said, yeah, you can. <laughs> But uh, when you get all these elements in you, tonight's going to be one of those moments. In fact, why don't you just whisper up a prayer for me right now? Because I'm adding another element to what is already kind of a busy experience. I do enjoy it. I promise you that. Uh, I enjoy it so much that sometimes people say you're having too much fun. Well, that's your problem. <laughs> Jesus and I have an amazing relationship and I do enjoy his company and his word. So if you ever see me having too much fun, that's it. He's in the book. He's in my heart. And when they bounce against each other, ah, I experience the power. This is Exodus <laughs> chapter 25. And look at verses 8 and 9. It says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle, the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. Now, if you begin at the first part of Exodus 25, you'll find out that the people of Israel were asked to bring things to build this tent that was going to be a little larger and more ornate than anybody's personal tent. But God says, let me live with you. Give me a place 
in your neighborhood. I don't need a house. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Heaven is his seat and earth is his footstool. He was not saying I want to come because I don't have a place. Jesus wasn't saying I can't find anywhere to rest. He was saying I love you so much that I would like to be in your neighborhood. So put me up a house so that you will remember that I live with you. I want to tell you tonight that though you may not put a house up for him in your neighborhood, Jesus still wants to live with you. Amazingly enough, with all the interesting things that go on in your house, and I'm only going to pause a moment to let you think about that. With all of the things that go on in your house, with all of the music that you play, with all of the things that you watch, particularly late at night when the little children have been tucked away, with all of those words you slip and say. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm ruining somebody's night. The fact is that with our imperfections, Jesus still wants to live with us. So he told Moses in the mount, I want you to build me a house, make me a tent. And he told him how to make it. In fact, verse 40 of Exodus chapter 25 says, and look that thou make them after their pattern, which was shown thee in the mount. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let this one out of the bag. The fact is that when Moses got the instructions about how to build the tent, and it had to be a tent, because they moved, all right? You, you can't build something that can't move if you are a people on the move. In fact, the Bible says Abraham looked for a city with foundations because he's kind of tired of moving. I, I have been over to that part of the world where nomads move all the time. They, they're here for a while, then they're there for a while. But watch how good God is. He says, if your camp moves, move my house with your camp. Because everywhere you move, I want to be with you. Somebody ought to say amen really loud because you move too much. Particularly in America, you can barely find people. Their jobs move. Sometimes the job closes and you got to move. But neighbors move and you don't like them, so you move. Family members move, so you move. You find a better job, you move. And you can barely nail us down. We ought to be happy to know that when you've got a relationship with Jesus, he moves when you move. If you've got the relationship, it's the relationship that's important. And you don't have to worry if you've got that. So the Lord says, when you move, move mine. And there were ways he had told them. There was a particular tribe that had the responsibility of covering the, the whole camp, of putting together those, those pieces of furniture. And he said, when, I, when you move, take my house with you because I always want to be in your camp. Somebody ought to experience the power of the declaration that Jesus does not stay where you used to live. <laughs> what good would a Jesus be who didn't go where you needed him? He's a very present help in the time of trouble. Well, look at uh, verse, uh, chapter 26. You, you, you're doing it again. You're being able to stay in one place. I'm going to do it one more time tonight. It's going to be wonderful. Exodus chapter 26 and look at verses 33 and 34. 
and it says and thou shalt hang up the veil under the tatches that thou mayest bring in thither within the veil the ark of the testimony and the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy and thou shalt put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy place now you may not know it but you are a certified Bible scholar now huh? do you feel it do you need me to give you something to take home or can you trust me we are getting deep now because what we are learning in this chapter is that Moses was not only instructed how to make this beautiful tent but he was instructed to make a division inside the tent that was a holy place and a most holy place now I'm gonna get one of my images let's try it gentlemen let's go with uh, number two there is no number one don't worry we have to go by a different sequence somebody's gonna say you missed something you did not I need to uh, show you uh, the Jewish tabernacle and what it looked like do you see it yet oh say can you see well let me see that is a representation of the tabernacle in the wilderness you see it's a tent but it's a very nice tent wouldn't you say some of you are averse to tents I used to be the leader of an organization that provided young people experiences in the woods and I uh, used to try to teach them how to put up tents some of them were reluctant to learn I found myself out in the woods one night all alone with many tents no young people and I thought to myself I should make them put them up and finally I said well I'll just put them up I put up all the tents and then I sat for a long time after that and I think I heard the Lord speak to me and say don't do this job anymore but I learned something about people in tents. People who live in houses with all kinds of conveniences don't get excited about tents. The people of Israel were excited about that house that you just saw because that house represented the presence of God. That's what churches are supposed to represent. I know people get all excited and try to make the church exactly like they want it. But it's not your house. It's God's house. And when you get inside of it, you ought to act like you're in God's house. Huh? Because it's not your house. That doesn't mean you've got to be always quiet. In fact, I am a little, I have a little problem with churches that are too quiet. I don't think churches ought to be raucous like some uh, stadium. But I think a church ought to have its own particular sound. Praising God ought to be recognized in the house of God so it was there let me tell you what was in it uh, in that tabernacle in the holy place there was a table of showbread upon that were built up stacks of bread that represented Jesus as the bread of life oh if I had time to tell you about all the things that had meaning you would be out of your mind with joy so there were there were the stacks of bread because he is the bread of life not the bread that fills my stomach alone He's the bread that nurtures my heart and inspires my mind. Then there was the seven-branched golden candlestick. And that represents Jesus as the light of the world. Even when I'm in the middle of a dark moment in my life, 
Jesus is the light of the world. He brightens up my pathway. There was the altar of incense. And that represented the prayers like sweet incense rising up to God. When you pray, God is pleased with your prayer. And your prayer doesn't go up like you pray it anyway. It's reinterpreted by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it goes up to him in a way that God can understand. In fact, if you ever wonder how you get things that you don't ask for, you've got to remember that the Holy Spirit interprets your prayer. So he may ask for something that he knew you needed, even though you didn't know to ask for. But the prayers go up. And, and, and that's only the holy place when you went behind that veil. And incidentally, only the high priest could go behind that veil. There were priests who worked in the in the holy place they could go in that place they were careful when they did but only the high priest could go in but if you went in here's what you would see you would see a piece of furniture artfully crafted out of pure gold it was made like a box overlaid with gold but then it was not an ordinary box because on either side of the box there were angels crafted out of gold and they veiled their faces and bowed towards each other and then amazingly in between those angels was a light that had no source of power that was earthly they call it the Shekinah glory God has always been represented by light Jesus is represented by light. In fact, I, I would suggest, and I know I'll make somebody who's technical angry, but I suggest to you that when the earth was first created, it was an amazing thing for Jesus to have to say, let there be light, because his presence is light. So what he must have meant was, I'll leave you permanent light, because so long as Jesus was there, there could be no darkness. He dwells in light. But when you opened up that place, you saw those two angel figures made of gold. You saw that box made of gold. Inside that box, there was, a, the, pardon me, the Ten Commandments. You know they were there. There was Aaron's rod that budded, and there was manna. We've talked about manna. But above the law of God, remember the Ten Commandments are inside the box. But above the box, above the Ten Commandments, is something called the mercy seat. Well, would you allow me to experience the power for a minute? Do you know if we had law and justice, but no mercy, none of us would be alive? I certainly wouldn't be a preacher. I wouldn't be qualified to get inside of a church. If the commandments, the law, didn't have mercy on top. I'm happy to report to you tonight. Don't ever let anybody make you afraid of God. God showed us who he was by sending Jesus. And in Christ, we saw that he stands for right. He said, I won't take away the law. I won't, I won't tear it down. In fact, one dotting of an I or crossing of a T will not pass from it until all is fulfilled. Jesus did not come to throw away law he came to bring mercy he came to seek 
and to save the lost. That's why tonight I don't have to preach to holy people only. In fact, I refuse to preach to holy people only. Huh? And I'm not angry at holy people. Some holy people are the best people on the face of the earth. Then, of course, you have some people who think they're holy. Do I have time to talk to them? No. You must be careful that you don't slip on either side of the slippery slope. Here's holy on the slope. Slip down that side, you're unholy. You are unrighteous. Slip down this side, you're self-righteous. Hmm? So if you think there's only one way to miss heaven, remember my slope. Unrighteous, self-righteous. You're not going to make it. In fact, the Bible says <laughs> you have come short of the mark. You, you can go left or right and miss the mark. The mark is to be holy in Christ. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came to bring a reflection of God's character. God can be perfectly righteous, perfectly just, and perfectly loving and merciful at the same time. So instead of God throwing out the commandments, he, he said, Jesus, I remember you and I have an agreement. You and I and the Holy Spirit have agreed from the foundation of the world. You will go and walk the path. In fact, let me let me tell you what gets me excited. Adam tried to walk the path. He saw it. He had just come from the hand of God. But every now and then he would turn. He and Eve would turn from the path of rectitude. They would go one way or the other and not do what God said. That tree had no evil in it by itself. It was just that God wanted to find out would Adam and Eve obey. And we still have the seeds of Adam and Eve inside of us. That's why we are so easy to be pulled off the path. But we could not listen. You and I couldn't make it if we only had the pattern of Adam to follow. In fact, some of the theologians call him the first Adam. Adam and Eve. So he tried. Eve tried. But they kept on going off the path. So Jesus came in order to get some powerful example that you can walk straight. So Jesus came and stood right where Adam was and started walking. Never made a turn. Never went to the left or to the right. So tonight it is not Adam's heritage that I need for my life. It is the second Adam. Jesus Christ who I need to come in my life and what I've got to do he has the, he has the amazing sensitivity to knock on the door of my heart and all I've got to do is go out there and say oh it's you there's some people who get so confused that they hold him out they think their houses are not up to snuff and he can't come in but Jesus hasn't come in for inspection He's come in with a cleaning power that's greater than anything you will ever know. What can wash away my sins? Nothing. 
but the blood of Jesus. So when he comes in, he comes in to clean my life. Has anybody ever had that experience of letting Jesus in? Well, I got to move. So, so you have seen that. Now, let me show you how it happened. Uh, give me the furniture in the holy place, and then I've got to move from that. I, this is an amazing thing because I, I get carried away with this stuff. The day that I stop being excited about doing this, I'll quit. Give me number six, and let's look at the furniture in the holy place. And uh, that will be interesting, I believe. I've described it. You'll see if I'm right or wrong, okay? You're looking at the, 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 the golden candlestick. Uh, do I see the table of showbread? Yes, I do, but I don't see any bread on it. I should have gotten another image for you. I do see the altar of incense. Do you see it? And the priest is standing in front of it. So you've got that. Now, the fact is that all of those things existed on the earth. But here's the power of the earthly sanctuary, the Jewish tabernacle. Give me number one. And here's what you need to see. The power of that tabernacle was not the tent. It was what happened in the tent. Now look at it. You see the priest? There's a family with a lamb. They are about to cut the throat of that lamb. In fact, look at the next one. That's number three, I believe. Look what happened. That lamb has done nothing. A perfect, a perfect animal without even a blemish. No twisted limb. And the reason why this lamb had to be perfect was because this lamb represented the Son of God. But the lamb was killed for nothing it had done. Its blood was shed every day at the tent. And look at, uh, look at number five. You will see that inside there, uh, there, was, there was something that would happen. I'm going to tell you now what you will find, and I hope you go home and look at Leviticus chapter 16. You will find there an amazing thing. Every day as people came to the sanctuary, that's what they called it, as they came to that tent, they would come to the edge of it. For a time, the priest would be the one who took the lamb's life. Eventually, I have read, the families would be asked to take the, the life of the lamb. But they'd take that blood, they'd go and offer it, it would go into the, into the inside court, it would be transferred legally into the holy place. So God took responsibility for the sins of Israel. And all you had to do was to take a lamb because you know what happens. The lamb represents Jesus. And the blood of the lamb represents Jesus' death on Calvary. So every day it happened. But there came a day called the Day of Atonement. Early in the year, God would say, my, my tent, my house is full of your sin. And I can't let my house remain filled with your problems. I've got to put the responsibility for sin where it belongs. I don't know whether you think about it, but you and I are not finally responsible for what we do. When we sin, our error has been to listen to the wrong voice. If you follow Jesus, you're in great shape. In fact, 
even if your humanity blemishes what you do for Christ, there is mercy for that. That's not the problem. The problem is when fooling ourselves, we say, I'm not going to do what he says. Nobody, in fact, I've heard him say it, no preacher is going to tell me what to do. And I agree with you, you ought not let any preacher tell you what to do. If they don't read it from the Bible, you may safely ignore it. But when I read it from the Word of God, that's a whole different story. Because what God says matters. And you cannot with impunity live your life in rebellion against God. Even your body will become riddled with pain if you continue to live outside of the laws of God. You bring death upon yourself. So what God said is that there must be a time during the year when we put sin where it belongs and watch what happened. When they came down to the Day of Atonement, the high priest alone would go and pull back that veil and go into the most holy place, taking an offering that represented all of the accumulated sins that had been put into the tabernacle over the year. And he would sprinkle the blood in there. Then he would come out and they would have made a choice between two goats. One would be the Lord's, the other one would be Azazel. That name represents the name of Satan in that particular symbol. So the high priest, with all of the sin of Israel for a year on his person, would say, bring me Azazel. And he'd put his hand on the head of that goat and legally transfer all of the sins of Israel for a year onto the head of that goat representing Satan. And a man called the fit man would take Azazel and lead him out and out and out and out until the goat could never find his way back. He would wander in the woods until he died. And that's where the sins were transmitted. They were put on the head of the devil who has brought sin upon us. And I don't know about you, but I feel pretty good about it because that's where they belong. Amen. There are times when I'm doing pretty good and the devil comes and interferes. Don't think the devil won't come to church. Mm. I don't want to get too personal, but you need to check who you're sitting by. Huh? Devil's influence is in church. In fact, he probably gets there earlier than most people who claim to be saints. And he's there. But what I learned by looking at the Day of Atonement is this. God shows us in this amazing parallel. And I've got to remind you that what you see in the sanctuary in the wilderness is mirrored in heaven. So if there's a table of showbread in the sanctuary, there's one up there. Right. wonder what that bread is like. If there's a candlestick here, there's one up there. What, what does that light look like? If there's an altar of incense here, there's one there. And if there is, if there is an ark of the covenant, 
if there are those angels that face each other carved out of gold on earth. What must it be like in heaven? Well, I, I got, got something to show you. Look at number seven. Because these are not carved angels. These angels are alive. Let me show you my number seven. And uh, what I want you to see is this. That in heaven there is everything that is shown. Look, those are not carved angels. And incidentally, the artist made them a certain color. Don't get locked into that. Nobody knows what color these angels are going to be when we see it. But I think it's a great photograph. I think it's a great picture, don't you? But don't be shocked. Don't be shocked if when you see the angels, I just know they're holy. What do you say? <laughs> so, so watch this. In fact, show me number nine. Show me number nine. Uh, I'll look at it on this side. I'm, I'm amazingly equipped here. If you look at this representation, you see the high priest standing at the Ark of the Covenant, and then you see a connection going down from that cloud down to a family on earth because here is what I must tell you whatever Jesus is doing in heaven is not for himself he's there for you do you know what power there is? I, I was preaching in a certain country and in that country, they were under the impression that when you pray, you have, to, you have to pray to holy people. You have to pray to saints who have died. And the saint will recommend you perhaps to a relative of Jesus when he lived on earth. And then that, maybe the mother of Jesus on earth, maybe she could get your prayer to Jesus. Do you know that when Jesus is standing in that sanctuary up there, I don't need anybody to get me through? When I think about it, when I get on my knees at home, my home may not be the place I'd prefer to live, but there must be a place in my house where I can pour out my heart to the high priest who ministers tonight in the heavenly sanctuary and every time I pray he hears my prayers well I don't know we need to talk about what happens in that place go to the book of Hebrews because uh, I'm telling you this this is powerful this whole sermon is an experience to power moment uh, Hebrews uh, you know something do I need to prove to you that in heaven they got the same thing? Yes, I will. I'll do it with one text. Go to Revelation chapter 15. I'm sorry to interrupt you from Hebrews, but it's not far from Revelation, <laughs> so you can go back. Revelation chapter 15 and verse 5. I don't really think I need it, but some doubter may be there. And the Bible says in Revelation chapter 15 verse 5, and, and after that I looked and beheld, behold the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. Yeah. If you look there, you see the 
tabernacle of the testimony. If you look in Revelation 11:19, the ark of his testament is there. If you look in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 3, the altar of incense is there. Whatever was here is only a reflection of what's in heaven. So now let's talk about what happens in heaven. And now you're in Hebrews. Some of you never left it. You were wise. You were wise. Uh, Hebrews 9. Let's go there because you know something? I've learned that I can just read and, and run into powerful moments. So you forgive me if I pause and experience the power because it's all in here. This is Hebrews chapter 9. And I'm going to try to read straight through. I really don't want to interrupt you. But from time to time, I can't help myself. The power multiplies itself exponentially. And I feel things that I cannot resist. Do you forgive me? Thank you. This is Hebrews chapter 9. Start verse 11. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Watch this next one. I'm going to try to read it and not get excited. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Oh, that's a powerful moment. I declare it and experience the power moment. What God says is this. If that sanctuary on earth worked, if sprinkling blood of calves and bulls and goats, if that worked, if, if anything happened because of that reflection of what happens in heaven, then what do you think happens when Jesus arrives in the heavenly sanctuary with the blood that he shed on Calvary's cross. Ah! What do you think happened if the blood of an animal reflecting what Jesus does can make a change? What happens when Jesus comes? And I guess some person like me would say, uh, Lord, where where is the blood? Do we have any blood? He said, Don't you remember? Don't you remember where I was before I came here? Don't you remember that they hung me on a cross? I'm not going to steal my, my sermon for Sabbath. Tempted to, but I'm not going to do it. Don't you remember that I just let them take what they had no power to take. Do you know Jesus didn't have to stay on that cross? Listen, listen. Jesus made the promise to die for me as God. He had to keep it as man. 
And he was not a play man. This was not some cinematographer. God said, I will. God said, when they sin, and I know they will, I love them so much that I'll put on human flesh. I'll reduce myself to seven to nine pounds of human flesh and be born of a virgin. I'll be born with no extraordinary protection that every child of God cannot have. Don't give me anything special. Treat me like a man. I want to become a man. I want to walk where the first Adam walked. I want to go in that path where he could not walk straight. I want to walk with the power that anybody can have if they just call on my father. So father, don't give me anything special. Don't make any special arrangements for me. Just give me what you would give Pearson and then let me walk. So he comes to the most holy place, my high priest, and he does not come with the blood of animals. He comes with that blood that has just flowed from his own veins. And let's, let's read some more. I'm sorry, I got carried away. Hebrews chapter 9, I went, did I go to 14? Uh, let me start with 23. Hebrews 9, start with 23. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true, but now into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth to the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world has he appeared to put away sin, to put away sin, to put away sin, to put away sin, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Oh, that's powerful. He went into heaven itself to appear before God for us. Look, can, can we talk? Do you know that man can't face God? Remember after Moses had been up in the mount all those weeks, he had enough temerity to say, let me see. I don't blame him. There are times when I want to see Jesus. But I don't want him to show up in bodily form. Because the righteousness of God cannot be withstood by unrighteous man. So, so, so Moses says, Lord, let me see. He said, you can't see me and live. Because my righteousness is too much for you. I, I, I'm going to read this for you one time. Not, not long from now. When Christ comes, people who have not repented will be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. You're not going to have to do anything. You've just been living in darkness so long that when you see his brightness, you're gone. Are you listening to me? So, so what Moses said was, let me see. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. And this is, this is, you forgive me. I got all kinds of experience, the power moments tonight, don't Jesus expressed himself in anthropomorphic terms. 
hey, I checked a couple words. And he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to go over there and get in that hole in that rock. I'm going to put my hand over you. And then I'm going to walk by you. And when I get past you, look at my back. Because that's all you can stand. And even then, when Moses came down from the mount, after having seen the back of the Lord, his face glowed so bright that they made him put a veil over his face just by looking at the back of the Lord. So I can't get back to God. Isaiah chapter 59 says, your sins have separated you from your God. My problem is I want to go back. I want to go back to God. I want to undo what Adam did, but I can't go. So this text says that Jesus, my big brother, and he's my big brother because he put on human flesh. He chose to pitch his tent beside my tent. He chose to take on humanity. And then he went to the heavenly sanctuary to appear in the presence of God Almighty for me. You see it? Well, I got to go. I can't stay there. But let me show you this. Christ did not go. In fact, I, I need to see it. You need to show you this. Uh, look at 19. Show me, show me 19. It, it's one that will make it very clear. Uh, I try to make my preaching clear, but uh, sometimes you need visual helps. And we've got one now. Number 19 is the one I need. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. So he's there for me. And he's there for you. Let me tell you what happened. Um, long ago, some, some young scholars got together. And they went and studied in the prophecies of the Bible. In fact, turn to the book of Daniel. Because this, this is powerful. But I got to share it quickly. Because you don't have long to be with me. Wish I could do all those long things. Can't. Turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Young people started studying the Bible. And when they studied, they came across some predictions in the Bible. Daniel chapter 7 starts with verse 9. And here's what it says. And I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the ancient of days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. Can I stop there just for a minute? Come on. <laughs> okay, I'm ready to go now. His throne was like a fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. Verse 10, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand, thousands ministered unto him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. This is the thing that you hate to hear preachers talk about. Don't, I, I get so sick of these preachers talking about judgment. Well, some preacher had better tell you what's in the Word of God. Because whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, the Bible says there will come a time known as judgment. And incidentally, judgment is not about you. It's about the vindication of the name of Jesus. 
It's not to justify you or to put you in trouble. The fact is that your works through Christ are not enough. Pardon me. Your works alone are not enough. The only ones who can be saved are those who have allowed Christ to live his life inside of them. So it's not about you. It's about vindicating the name of Jesus. The devil said that the, that the Lord was vengeful. That he was mean. If you don't do exactly what he says, he'll kill you. He said awful things about Jesus. But I'm going to tell you what Jesus can do. He can take any one of our lives and use it as proof that he's not mean. But, but the judgment is coming. Look at, look at Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14. Daniel chapter 8 verse 14. And he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. These scholars looked at this text. They said, we know what cleansing means. It means judgment is coming. It means that the equivalent of the atonement in the sanctuary on earth is about to happen. Then they went to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 11. And am I getting it right? Yeah, I got it. No, that's wrong. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25. And here's what they found. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The streets shall be built again and the wall even in troubles times. These scholars looked at biblical predictions and compared them carefully and found that there is a time prediction in the Bible that's connected with the atonement. And they didn't make many mistakes. They went and found the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. They found many commands, but some of them only said rebuild. They didn't say restore. Some of them never had any effect, but there was one that had effect. It was one made by Artaxerxes. It was made in 457 BC. These young scholars found the year and said, you know something? I believe that these days, 2300 days, represent years. If you go back in the Old Testament, you'll find many places where days and years are almost interchangeable. But if you go to Numbers chapter 14 and verse 34, or Ezekiel chapter 4 and verse 6, you will find that in prophecy, days represent years. So these young people started at 457 and went around for 2300 years and found out that something happened in the heavenly sanctuary in 1844. What they found was the beginning of the equivalent of atonement. In heaven, Jesus, our high priest, moved from the holy place to the most holy place to begin the final phase of cleansing the heavenly sanctuary so that sin will not rise again and when they found it some of them thought ah we've got it 
The only mistake they made was that they thought it meant that Jesus was about to come. In 1844, you can go look in history books. You'll discover that people sold all their property. You'll discover that people went and said, I don't want my stuff. They gave it away. You'll discover that people went and dressed themselves in white robes. I've stood on a little rock called Ascension Rock up in, up in the northeast. And, and I've been there where people said, look, Jesus is coming in 1844. There was a preacher named William Miller who would not believe it. He said, look, you can't date when Jesus is coming. He said, I you know not the day or the hour but these people said they said no we found it they were at the right year they had the right time the only thing is they didn't have the right event and so there was a time right after that that was called the great disappointment and people were crushed but let me tell you something instead of Jesus coming he simply went into the final phase that the theologians call the investigative judgment and let's make it real simple all it means is this the Lord says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. How can you have your reward unless judgment has taken place? Huh? You think the Lord is going to come and give you a reward and then take it back? That's not the way God works. So before he comes, there will be a process, starting with the dead and then coming to the living. And Jesus will determine who is it who's willing to stand for right? Who's willing to obey Jesus? Who's willing to let Jesus come in and live his life inside of them? And before you get scared, because I, I hear too many preachers turn to Hebrews chapter 7. I hear too many preachers preaching to make people scared. There's nothing to be frightened about with a loving Lord. He will destroy the wicked. He's going to do it. But he says, I'm not willing that any should perish. But that all should come to repentance. What the Lord wants you to know tonight is that anything he can do to save you, he will do it. We are at Hebrews chapter 7. Go to verse 24 and 25. Hebrews 7, 24, 25. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Jesus lives to intercede for you. Go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And let me tell you something. If Jesus says he will intercede for me, I trust him with my case. I trust him over any lawyer on the face of the earth. Jesus says, I will take up your case. You can't afford me, so your case is paid for by my blood on Calvary. And I will be there standing before my father to intercede for you this is Romans chapter 5 and look at verse 10 Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 here's what it says for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life and not only so but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement! Well, I gotta get to the next. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The fact is that Jesus has given us the atonement. I got one last text for you, and if you can be scared after this, 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you can be frightened after that, then you don't believe what the Bible says. Because the Bible has the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. 
For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Here's what I must tell you. The fact is that the 2300-day prophecy leads us down to a time now that tells us that since 1844, we have been living in the time known as judgment. But you don't have a thing to worry about unless you take your hand out of Jesus' hand. If you take your hand out of his hand, you got plenty to worry about. But if you hold on to his unchanging hand, then you have nothing to worry about. Until tomorrow night, may God hear you when you call. May God lift you if you fall. May God bless you as you stand. May God hold you in the palm of his hand. Walter Pearson believes that Jesus Christ is the answer to every problem you face.